0: Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Orla Shanahy, of VoxGig, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting and attending. In each episode, I sit down for a relaxed fireside chat with people in the public speaking community. My aim is to learn how they've mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And just before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to our sponsor, simplecast.com, the first and last word in podcasts. Today I'm talking to Petra Kindler. Petra is a spoken word artist, a comedian, a literary translator, a playwright and a freelance creative director. She's a German who has been living in Ireland for over 30 years and she specializes in pointing out the ridiculous in everyday life. Petra, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Orla, for inviting me. So I'm just going to launch straight into it, Petra. When people hear the words German and comedian in the same sentence, I'm guessing the reaction, unfortunately, might be based on the old cliché that, unfortunately, we've probably all heard of Germans being humorless. I've lived in Germany. I know that is not true, but the (laughs) cliché does exist. So what do you say to that? How do you deal with that if somebody is tactless enough to mention it? I wouldn't call it tactless. It's just a little
1: bit exasperating because it's something you hear so much. But if it's a stereotype, then it is something that people have either experienced or heard about too much, or it is something that bears a little kernel of truth in it, which I think all of it is true. Growing up in Germany, of course, I have come across a lot of people who would struggle with the concept of humor as we know it here in Ireland, or as, for example, in Britain, where the type of banter and making fun of each other is part of the general discourse and where people just have a conversation and they throw in a few jokes and it's just Mm -hmm. part of what you do. And in Germany as you probably have experienced as well, it's more now we are talking about a topic and we are Mm -hmm. trying to find a solution and we're trying to get through this idea or whatever. So it doesn't come as naturally to us in Germany as it comes to people, especially in Ireland, where Mm -hmm. uh, slagging each other off is mandatory. And in Germany, (laughs) it's something that uh, people struggle with. The whole concept is different. But uh, if I may add... I went to comedy, to huge comedy festivals in Germany long before you even had the term comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Is that right? Yes, that is right. And that is how I was even introduced uh, to the concept of being funny on stage. It's not that I ever thought I would do that or I could do that, but I always enjoyed it. And from very early age. Well, from teenage, I was aware of comedians and of the way they entertain people. But in Germany, you have to go somewhere where it says there will be funny people here and then okay. you laugh and be funny. And then everything is fine. And everything is actually really funny most of the time.
0: Yes. Okay. So it's a bit more explicit. Yes. Would that be right in Germany in that you're, <laughs> you're told on the way in, this will be funny. It's okay to laugh. <laughs>
1: Yes, you're allowed to laugh.
0: That's funny because just thinking back on some of my own experiences working in Germany, you know, as an Irish person, and that was quite a few years ago and, you know, probably a bit young and inexperienced. And, you know, doing that typical Irish and I think, British thing of joking in the workplace and, yes. you know, having a bit of humor mm. and it not really landing, you know, not, not really getting the results that I was expecting. So, yeah, that, I, I wish I'd spoken to you before I went to Germany <laughs> because maybe they thought I was being really frivolous in the workplace or something. <laughs> I guess you live and learn, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. When I came to Ireland first, and that was in 94 to do an English language course, to me, it was really like coming to the place that I was meant to be because immediately I met uh, people. I I stayed with a host family at the time for three weeks and these people were exactly as I would have wished the family that I grew up in to be. Just banter and just having a laugh and not taking each other too seriously. But at the same time, being kind. Mm -hmm. It's not about tormenting people with your wit It's just about exchanging something. And I did miss that growing up in Germany. I found later, I found my tribe in Germany as well. Okay. I could do these things with, but growing up being with other people in school, I got into trouble for doing the things that you do quite naturally in Ireland. I don't know why I did them because it didn't happen in my family Maybe there was some former life interference there. I don't know what I felt at home when I came to Ireland.
0: That's interesting. And I'd like to talk about your earlier life in a minute. But Mm -hmm. before we do that, uh, we have a lot of public speakers listening. So I just Mm wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, we often hear that public speaking is one of people's worst fears, Mm -hmm. you know, next to death. (laughs) And and to me, at least, stand-up comedy, I can only imagine that that's even more terrifying. (laughs) How do you deal with nerves? How do you get yourself into the right mindset for going and standing on a stage? And you have a one-woman show, by the way, so Mm -hmm. there's nobody there to, you know, to take the heat off you. How do you prepare yourself mentally and and deal with the nerves?
1: Two different things. Firstly, my one-woman show, I did use kind of a crutch because this is a show that's over an hour long and it came about as a talk that I was asked to give, a talk about translating literature. Mm -hmm. And I didn't show what I came up with to anyone. I just decided to write how someone like myself ended up translating literature, translating novels, because that was in itself quite unusual from Mm -hmm. where I came from and how I grew up. And that then morphed into this confessional comedy performance. But while I was performing a little bit and I had a few props and I had a few things that I held up, I had a manuscript that I could refer to and I just turned over the pages. And while I I knew most of the things by heart and I didn't have to uh, refer to it too much, I still Mm -hmm. had that manuscript. Right. The stand-up that I only launched in really into last year, because I always loved stand-up, but I didn't think it suited me. That is, of course, something you have to abandon. Uh, You have to abandon all security lines and nets and everything. You just have to launch yourself onto stage and kind of hope for the best. And that's what I did first. And it was not good enough. Okay. (laughs) I realized that I needed a lot more preparation and that I needed taking into account eventualities, uh, people Mm -hmm. interrupting me, people trying to be smart and funny from the audience and, you know, all of this heckling thing. It's yeah. not as though that happened to me a lot. It's just something that uh, when it happens, I need to be prepared for it. So I just need to prepare much more and I need to be very very confident in my material because as a non-native speaker and doing comedy uh, in English is a bit more daunting even though Mm -hmm. I love the English language and I love being witty or funny in the English language it does not come as naturally to me as it would to a native speaker of course Mm -hmm. these are the two things Um, first I had my manuscript and I could fall back to that And it didn't really interrupt my performance. Mm -hmm. And secondly, for stand-up, I have to practice, 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 really. Okay. As a public speaker, when I did that talk about translating novels, that was my first public talk as well. And it didn't even occur to me that it could be disastrous. I don't know why. I don't know. (laughs) I was strangely relaxed going into this. And uh, what actually helped me was that I was about half an hour before it started, I was in the foyer and people were coming in and I was chatting with them. I knew my audience. I knew the people Uh, I knew some of them. Yeah. I got to know them and I got to know faces and it just felt as though people meant well and they wanted me to succeed. They wanted to be entertained. So I was more in myself and present in the moment and I didn't have the time to develop all of these fears and phobias that might have interrupted my performance on the day. Uh So that was a good start into public speaking.
0: Yeah. We've spoken previously on this podcast with other guests about cross-cultural barriers and cross-cultural communication. So when you're performing to a non-German audience, but yet you're in your publicity, Mm -hmm. you do use the fact that you're a German comedian, you know, really well, really cleverly to kind of, you know, hook the audience, which is really great and really funny before you even enter your show. <laughs> so, yeah. So any cross-cultural barriers that you have had to explicitly think about and think how you're going to overcome them? And maybe any that just came up on on the spur of the moment? Oh,
1: that's an interesting question. Cross-cultural barriers.
0: Yes. One thing might be that, again,
1: in Germany, if somebody asks a question, like, The question in in Ireland that you get asked all the time, how are you?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That
1: is quite perilous if you ask a German, how are you? Yeah, Because everybody in Germany then expects to get some sort of reply that includes... The state of mind or the state of health, or <laughs> you, know, you need to be prepared for a reply for an answer. And this is certainly something that does not happen in Ireland. How are you? Is really just yes. hello. Yeah. I was never quite sure, and I still am not quite sure whether you are supposed to reply anything at all or fine, because mm-hmm. fine is or great or grand. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a reply that most of the time happens, and sometimes you reply with. How are you yourself? And expect equally little of a reply back. Mm -hmm. And I, I still struggle with that because if you have been socialized in Germany, you find it rude not to get the chance to reply
0: truthfully. Yes. Yeah, there is that imperative, I think, in German culture, at least the part that I was in, to be truthful. I think that's a good point you're raising there. I suppose it's quite specific to Ireland in that there's a a history of oral storytelling. Yes. um, And that somehow has survived even to this day, I think. Yes.
1: My partner, Donald, he's Irish. And when I started visiting him in his family, and I noticed after a while, his father was telling the same stories on different occasions. Oh yes. And as a German, you always want to barge in and say, eh, you told me that? You yeah. <laughs> me that and then after quite a long while, I realized it's not about that. It is about having people tell that story. And sometimes there's a new twist to it. And sometimes there's a creative twist to it. Uh, Sometimes there's a different uh, ending or a different beginning. And um, it's still the same story. Mm -hmm. And it is about community. It is about uh, sharing something. And it is about also being polite. You don't want to tell someone maybe they might have forgotten they told that story already. Mm -hmm. It took me a while to realize that most of the time they probably knew they had told the story before. Yes. And this didn't matter. Actually, it did matter in, in the sense that you do tell stories over and over and over again. And I found that so luxurious. Once I had made my peace with this um, yeah. tradition, I found it really lovely and heartwarming that this is something that happens in families in Ireland, that they tell each other stories they were even part of, and it is a community thing and it is something that warms everybody's heart and heart as well. Mm-hmm. That was a new thing to me. And nice. sometimes I still struggle with it. And sometimes I tell Donald as well, oh, you told me that before. And then mm-hmm. I have to tell myself that let them tell that story because I forget so many stories. Uh, I've been told so many stories and things and I, I keep forgetting them. And if, if you do what you do in Ireland you forget probably less of it and you're forgiven mm. if you tell a story.
0: That's a really nice perspective on it. Yeah, and you're so right that it's not about, you know, if somebody is <laughs> telling a story that you've heard before, it really isn't about the information contained in the story or <laughs> it's more the atmosphere, the, the bond they're creating, the, the, the performance. Yes. It could be anybody who has never stood up on a stage in their lives, but they are performing, even if it's just in your kitchen or, or their own yes. kitchen. Yeah. So I said I wanted to go back a little bit with you. So I'm wondering what you were like as a child. Because you mentioned a little bit there that you maybe were perceived as speaking out of turn. Would that be right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think performers and creative people are often children who were maybe categorized as the cheeky one in class, you know, maybe an attention seeker, a daydreamer. I myself was often criticised for looking (laughs) out the window in class. So was any of that the case with you? Were you the kid who talked back in class? Well, I, I changed school 10 times. Ah. we
1: moved quite frequently. And if we didn't move, I changed uh, the type of school because in Germany, we have this three tier system. Mm-hmm. You might remember that we have the primary school. And then after primary school, you divide it into three different categories of schools. And it is decided at that age at around 11, 10, 11, which almost decided which path you might go, because then you can either stay in a a school that might lead to apprenticeship and mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Or you might go to a school that f- might prepare you for a middle school. as It's called or was called, it's now called Realschule, uh, which prepares you for maybe office work. Yeah. And then gymnasium, Abitur, which is the type of school which uh, leads into third-level education. Mm-hmm. And I grew up first in the countryside and on a farm and then very small village and then a bigger village and then a town and that's basically it in terms of size of settlement that I lived in and coming from a, a working class and background, it was never not just was it not expected of me to go to university right it was actively discouraged okay and it was looked at with great suspicion okay by my parents, who both of whom were second world war refugees and my mother had grown up in the what is now the Ukraine. And at 14, she had to leave that part. And they went on this endless trek mm-hmm. uh, across war-torn countries to Germany because she was like my father, but from a different area, was a German by birth, but not by socialization. Okay. They were farmers as well. So neither of them had finished any school education because it was so brutally interrupted and mm-hmm. they spent years on the road Uh, and being in mortal danger, and then years again in camps, in war, destroyed Germany. and So they had no experience, no good and positive experience of school. And Mm -hmm. all they were about was some sort of financial security. And that was what they wanted for me. And that's the only thing they could for us, we were four siblings that the only thing they could really appreciate and they didn't know that and they didn't have the experience that further education school education would get you better jobs it was just a strain for them it was you Mm -hmm. stayed at home you didn't earn money you cost money because you had to buy school books and all of that and school materials so that was not something they wanted me to do.
0: Okay. And can I just ask you, when? Yeah. so like you said earlier, maybe you were, were a bit more talkative, would that be right, in schools. Yeah. That must have clashed with your parents' values. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I'm guessing if they ever met the teachers or maybe in your school reports when they realized you weren't being a good girl in school. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't being a bad girl because once I
1: went <laughs> to school, I I really enjoyed it because that was something that got me out of This fairly dysfunctional household because of all the trauma that they had gone through, there was a lot of violence and bad blood in our family. So school and the things that happened in school, that you had to be there at a certain time, that you got to read books and all of that. I enjoyed that immensely. So school was always kind of a retreat for me. Okay. And teachers, while I did have a few sadistic teachers, because I changed schools so often, none of them had a lasting effect on me. And Mm -hmm. I had some really wonderful teachers who encouraged me. I was a bit feral, I would say. So I could go wherever I wanted. I could do whatever I wanted most of the time because nobody really cared much. So I was probably a bit more cheeky and a bit less uh, subdued than a lot of other kids. So I would ask questions and I I wanted to answer questions that I didn't know the answer to. So I was certainly someone who paid attention uh, at school okay. and I learned quite quickly. So it wasn't a big issue that I was talking <laughs> was, okay. Yeah, yeah. And making fun of my schoolmates—that was more of a problem. Okay. The <laughs> validation once coming to me—I think it was when I was about ten or so four of them came up to me and said, we don't want to play with you anymore, Peter. And I said, why? Because you're always making fun of us, and we don't like that. Oh, okay. They said, they make fun of me too. I don't mind that either. And they said, we, we don't want that. We don't know how to do that. Oh, okay. Actually, That's from interesting. then on, I realized that if I wanted to have a few friends, I needed to bite my tongue more. Ah, oh,
0: okay. I know you in your, the earlier part of your career, you were in advertising companies, advertising agencies. Mm-hmm. Lots of people, when they drift into public speaking, it's because they've been asked at work by their boss, let's say, can you give a talk about this or can you speak at this, such and such a conference? Was that how it was for you? Did you have your first experiences of speaking in public in that way or did it happen differently for you?
1: Yes, I think that was that were probably some of the first experiences of that because after a while, I had to speak at presentations when you presented a new campaign to a client. Mm-hmm. The first few years were in a quite a small agency and all the presentations were done by our boss, who was this primus inter paris, I think what's he called <laughs> himself. And I didn't get to do much of that, but I certainly had to stand up to, uh, in front of my colleagues and defend my ideas and defend my concepts. And that really started. And then mm-hmm. later on in bigger agencies, It was expected that if you were in any way senior, you had to attend the presentation in front of the client and you had to have good arguments, but because if you had developed the campaign yourself or co-developed it, you were convinced that this was the best way Mm -hmm. of going forward and the best way to promote this product or service. And it didn't feel too
0: scary then. Okay. Yeah. Because you were so passionately involved in it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So do you remember your first public speaking experience? Was it in work or was it uh, more in the performance line? I'm interested to figure out how you found your path to performance. It
1: was probably easing into it because when I was in Hamburg, I lived in Hamburg for 17 years from going to university and not completing university but staying in Hamburg and working in advertising agencies. But Mm -hmm. while I was working in advertising on a lower level, I was already a part of an a cappella group, a singing group where you have to imitate everything that normally comes from instruments with your voice. This was an a cappella group that did anything. We did comedy, singing we did jazz and blues and classical music that we turned into voice pieces and everybody had a few solo pieces as well as you did the solo part or the solo singing and the others did the background music and that's probably where I first had to step out Uh, in front of an audience and explain things and be a presenter. And I remember really struggling with that. People told me that they enjoyed it and they thought I was being quite confident. I felt like sinking into the ground and I always thought I had embarrassed myself. I had embarrassed my group and nothing could convince me. But I, I didn't say that. I didn't want people to tell me, "Oh, you were great." So I didn't. Yeah. Say I didn't say it. I just suffered in silence, and I hoped that it wouldn't be my turn again to say something. So I couldn't work on that. It's really a catch twenty two when you do that. When you do it that way, if you at least voice it, oh, yeah. somebody can tell you here uh, there are a few tricks that you can use to feel more confident and to do it better. <laughs> So I just straggled along and did it until we disbanded. And the real first time was when I gave that talk about translating literature here in Waterford in, I think it was 2013.
0: Okay, so it took that long until you did your first, I suppose, formal public speaking. Yes. Yeah. I touched on it there earlier about fear and nerves, because so many of us who do any kind of public speaking or performing do suffer from it and I remember a couple of years ago hearing the Irish comedian Tommy Tiernan Mm -hmm. speaking about that and you know he's very successful and traveling around and how he could be in his hotel room you know before a gig uh, at five o'clock that day let's say and the performance was due to be that evening and he would be literally dying as in he would be thinking I can't do it. He would be, you know, in such a state of mental distress, really. But that somehow, by the time eight o'clock rolled around, he would be able to get up there and put on an amazing show. And that's just an anecdote that's always stayed with me. This huge gap that there can be between somebody confidently and competently performing on stage when maybe minutes before in the wings, they've been a state. (laughs) With all your years of experience, does it get any easier (laughs) to stand up? (laughs) And perform or is it is there always
1: that fear from my own experience there's always a certain level of fear, and it does correspond directly with the level of preparation I'd say that there is mm-hmm. I don't think there are many shortcuts unless you are a natural in terms of improvising of improvising mm-hmm. ideas and of improvising interaction, and then this can be a completely different show but if you want to get. Certain things across, and if you want to tell certain stories and and you don't have any other stories on backup, mm-hmm. then it's all about preparation and I think Tommy Tiernan he's probably someone who who might be a hybrid, I think mm-hmm. he's a work animal, so I, I do think he prepares very, very, very thoroughly because he has quite complex ideas that he needs to get across in a very engaging and funny and sometimes in a manner that confronts people's Mm -hmm. uh, idea of comedy as well. Yes. He's quite a pioneer as well. So I've been wondering about him for some time, how he does it. But I think he can improvise as well, but he needs to know what he's talking about. So you have to really get into your own material and into your own mind and out of the vortex of fear, which I sometimes... Feel is where people end up staying. And I have done that. I have stepped up on stage with material that I thought I knew really well in Dublin once. Mm-hmm. And when I thought it really mattered for a competition in uh, with stand up and it wasn't much, it was just about five minutes and I completely blanked. And you just have to forgive yourself then and say, okay, dust yourself off and do it again. Because really, nobody died. Nobody will <laughs> die, even if it's called dying on stage. Yeah, wow. yeah, I've heard that. Dying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have a few moments of being excruciatingly embarrassed mm-hmm. and embarrassing. And then the world moves on, you move on, your audience moves on. And some people who are in the audience might feel sorry for you and some people might feel relieved because their material then has a better chance. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Just a moment, dust yourself off. And if you want to do it, just do it again. Yeah, I only started this in my 50s. And what on
0: earth do I have to lose? Yeah, that's a nice way to look at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's very common sense advice, really. Dust yourself off, pick yourself up and try again. And
1: if you do it and when you do it and when it works there is no better feeling Oh yes! because when you realize people are actually laughing with you, not at you, (laughs) despite the fact that you're a German and sometimes because of the fact (laughs) they have been caught out, they realize, oh, I had this idea in my head about Germans and that's why I'm doing this. One of the reasons why I'm doing this is just getting rid of some stereotypes, but also playing with the stereotypes because we have stereotypes in our heads. And that's what makes things funnier when you can play with them and when you can show them up and when you can find people are confronting their own pre-conceived ideas and it chatters them to a certain extent. And that's a triumph. And I love that when it happens.
0: Yes. That must be a great feeling.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I'm determined to keep on doing this and keep on preparing better because I sometimes have problems concentrating and focusing and mm-hmm. the more I bring myself to doing that, to focusing on what I want to do in these five minutes that are coming up, then it's fine and then it's a joy and then it's a joy to be jiving really with the audience and Mm -hmm. you are on, on something with them Indeed, you are connecting with them and that's a lovely, lovely feeling. I can only recommend doing that.
0: Yes. So it's isn't it like in public speaking, performing, the highs are high. The lows are low. And yeah, I guess accepting that is probably a good step along the path. Yes. I wanted to ask you as well, Petra, you're very involved in drama. That's another one of the hats that you wear. And you you were involved with a project with young people in Ghana, uh, which also went on to tour in Ireland. Have I got that right?
1: Yes, uh, you could probably call it two. We had six shows, but it was part of a festival.
0: Yeah. And how did that come about? How how did that all start? I've been working with this particular theater company in
1: Germany, which is a young theater company. I wouldn't call it youth theater because you do have lots of performers who are in their 20s as well. But this is something I have been doing since 2000, actually since I moved to Ireland, I have been working more and more with them remote, but also I go over and develop plays with them. This is a company that up until very recently has been doing only original plays and I have been involved in dramaturgy. So I first I was a creative consultant, you could say, and ideas giver and turning ideas into texts and into Mm -hmm. dialogue. And then more and more I got into writing. Yeah. and into writing and I was asked to write entire plays then with them and for them but it's always in conjunction with the young performers we have okay. lots of workshops and then we go and develop dialogue and develop text from that so they are, everybody is very much involved in the creation of those plays and this Ghana project was one of the projects that we do with intercontinental creative collaborations. That's what this theater and this theater group is very involved in. So in this case, it was a young German Ghanaian or she's still Ghanaian, but she's in the process of becoming a German citizen. She had moved to Germany about eight years ago and turned out to be a very talented performer. Mm -hmm. She had been sent by her school to perform with this theater group. And even when she didn't have any German, she was a great presence on stage. And she, she was involved in several of the plays that I had been working for and with. But they had never done this theater company, had never done a solo play until they came across this young performer, Gifty Mm Viaffe. And uh, she was just so talented and also so reliable and so quick in picking up things that we thought this is now the time to come up with something original for her on her own. And because I had done my own semi-autobiographical play, Mm -hmm. uh, the director decided to ask me to write this also partially autobiographic play and performance for Gifty and with Gifty and from her stories, but not just her stories, but the stories of other migrants, modern migrants, their struggles, their challenges, their joys, their peril, all of the things that they had to deal with crossing continents and cultures and all of that. So it's so such an exciting topic as well. It's not just about making them more comfortable. It's also about making us more aware of the fact that we are all on this planet together and that everybody has different experiences. So we try to make it as beneficial to everyone as possible. And this was a play about her life, but also about Africa, about Ghana, about Germany, about how German cliches and in Africa and the other way around, how African and how Ghanaians uh, perceived in Europe and Germany, and all of that in a semi-comedy. Ah. So there were some things that are probably shocking to Germans, but a lot of the time we were trying to find the funny side to entertain people while educating them about the world. And that really seemed to work very well. So uh, it's also about mental health issues that somebody who is torn or taken or
2: Mm-hmm. Left
1: their own culture behind and coming into a new culture as a teenager. all of these things are squashed into this play which also contains a lot of singing and dancing and drumming because Gifty is a little genius. And mm-hmm. we try to make use of all of her talents, and they are plentiful. So uh, there's a lot going on visually as well on stage, and it, mm-hmm. it worked for the audiences. We had lots of sold-out shows in Germany. The play, I was commissioned to write the German and the English language version of the play, mm-hmm. And uh, so in Germany, it's a slightly different script as well, because we are telling German audiences a few different things about Africa that African people don't need to know because they grew up in it Mm -hmm. and the other way around. So the play is still in huge demand in Germany. It's still touring there. Whenever Gifty has time, she's just finishing her studies. But uh, we had a tour in Ghana. We had 12 shows in Ghana, all across Ghana. And that, thankfully, was also really successful and people related to those stories. And then I submitted it for the first fortnight festival, which is a mental health festival. And this was the first one uh, having a a European-wide search out for performances. And it was accepted. And it was one of the headline shows this year in early January, first in the Project Arts Center in Dublin and then here in Lane for several performances and we had such a wonderful time with it and our audiences were uh, it was a joy to to see how people related to her and to her stories and to the cultural expressions that they weren't used to but they were walking mm-hmm. up like sponges it was Wonderful.
0: Wow, it's it's hard to imagine, but it sounds so amazing. And again, the cross-cultural thing there, like from Ghana to Germany and then on to Ireland. And you say that you also wrote the English version for English speaking mm-hmm. audiences. So can you tell us, were there any adjustments, let's say, or what kind of changes did you have to make between the German and the English version?
1: For example, in the German version we made sure to also make fun of the perceived German efficiency, and then we counteracted that with some of the most infamous projects massive infrastructure projects in germany that have been going on for 12 years where they were supposed to be finished in three years and uh, like the big airport in berlin which is still not finished and it had to be restarted several times it is obscenely over budget. And nobody really knows about that much in the English speaking world or in Africa, where they think everybody is so efficient in Germany. And you have several of those massive projects in Germany that have been going 10 times over budget and are still ongoing after five years of planning and replanning and rebuilding uh-huh. All of that happens. So we're making fun of these things that in Germany to remind Germans that we are not the greatest planners on earth. <laughs> we're just very good at giving out that impression uh, sometimes. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's interesting. In Nigeria and Mali and Ghana as well, there are these Sakawa, which is it's a kind of spiritual, it's sold as spiritual healing and spiritual enriching. So uh-huh. you have to realize that people in in Ghana actually believe that these spirits do things and that you can engage them into plans that you have for or against uh certain people okay and Sakawa is the internet based version of that, so it's a very manipulative and easily manipulated way of taking money out of people's pockets and promising them riches is quite malevolent, is that the word? It's happening more and more. So we are talking about that and we are warning against that in Africa where it is more of an issue. Okay, I see. Going into certain local issues and spreading the word that this is not all it's made out to be.
0: Right. So there was an
1: educational aspect as well? There is, yeah. We were trying not to be overly didactic. Yeah. And at the same time, there is so much that people in, for example, in Germany don't know about. Did you know that the largest electronic waste open air dump is in a suburb of Accra, the capital of Ghana? My goodness. It is world's largest electronic waste dump. It used to be a lagoon and it is now a huge toxic uh, swamp and it is also swamped by young Ghanaian kids from northern Ghana who come there to uh, try and extract the tiny little bits of precious metal that are in every appliance. And they mm-hmm. burn them, they burn old fridges and they burn old microwaves and everything to extract those precious metals. And of course, they are poisoning themselves. And most of them will never reach the age of their parents because they don't know it. They're just breathing in this toxic air. And Europe and but also mm-hmm. Japan and America, we are selling them our electricity waste mm-hmm. as reusable. So it's being classed as reusable when it is clear that it is not reusable. It's it's going to end up on those dumps. It's going to be burned and it's going to kill uh, lots of hopeful young children and teenagers who are trying to make a living. We are very much involved still in the exploitation and destruction of African societies mm-hmm. and economies. And EU is also doing that with certain not necessary with tariffs and all of that. We went into some of the detail without trying to lecture as I'm doing yeah. right now, but it's, mm-hmm. it's all told within stories, stories within stories. So people listen, they take in what they t- can take in, they learn something new, and they also get entertained. And that was our vision with this mm-hmm. particular play. We don't usually tell all that much. We are a bit more abstract with other plays, but this one we felt there needed to be information mm-hmm. got across and that's what we worked on.
0: And the fact that it's still touring are still being performed in Germany, so it's obviously reaching people. Yes. It's resonating with people.
1: Yes, it resonates mm-hmm. with people in both German and in English cultures, if you want to put it like that. We are you know, hoping to get mm-hmm. the play over again maybe next year for an actual tour. They didn't have much time this time around to actually tour because we had quite a lot of interest from other theatres around Ireland. We Mm. couldn't take them up on their offer because of time constraints mainly and logistics. Mm -hmm. This is still going on because the story there, that's not going to change anytime soon. It's also Gifty's personal story in some ways. So it's engaging in that way as well. It is entertaining. It is moving. That's what people tell us. They, Some of us told us they, they did laugh and they did cry, which is the best mm-hmm. thing that you can hope for with a, with a play. And they yes. did learn something. They yeah. also told us that. So I think we have achieved what we wanted to achieve. Not everybody is equally happy, but we have only, and I don't think you can say that about many plays, we have had only almost perfect tense as reviews. We get fantastic reviews everywhere the play goes. It it gets great reviews. And a lot of that is due to Gifty's uh, talents and Gifty's presence and the way that she relates to people. And uh, we just need Mm -hmm. to build up more young people like that. There are so many stories out there and they need to be told and they need to be written and they need to be shown. And I can only encourage people to look across their own rooms and boxes and try to listen at least listen to stories that are not the stories that you are too familiar with um listen to new stories find mm-hmm. new people find new groups and communities they all want to tell their stories all you have to do is go there and listen or invite them mm-hmm. and then our world will be the richer for it
0: Petra, we're coming to the end of our time today. We could talk all day. Um, And, you know, we we haven't even touched on some of the other things that you do. You're a a high profile literary translator as well. And that would be a separate (laughs) podcast, I think. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, For anyone who wants to get in touch with you, reach out to you. You're on Twitter. Is that right? What's your what's your Twitter handle? Yes, I'm on Twitter and I'm just Petra Kindler on Twitter,
1: Petra Kindler, Petra Kindler. Okay. If I have any confusion, I have no pen name there.
0: Yeah, just your name, Petra Kindler.
1: I read more on Twitter than I post, but I probably should do more, but everybody says that. Yeah. But I am on Twitter and if you want to reach me, feel free to, to follow and we might get into a conversation then and I might get to
0: share yeah. more as well. Thank you so much. It was great to have you here today. Thanks, Petra. Bye. Bye, Ola. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of the Fireside with Voxgig podcast. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxgeek.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art not especially easy to master, but it is a skill like any other and one you too can learn. Visit voxgig.com speakers to subscribe to the newsletter. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review. That helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact us directly, you can reach out to us on Twitter at voxgig, V-O-X-G-I-G. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let us know and we'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check our sponsor, simplecast.com, who helped make this podcast possible.